Welcome to the third season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and in this season, I'll be sharing conversations with educators and leaders who are making schools and classrooms more phenomenal than ever before by implementing community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment practices that promote agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. I am honored to share these conversations of innovation and passion with all of you. Thank you so much for listening in. On this season of the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast, we are exploring the ways in which teachers and school leaders are transforming schools to be places where teaching and learning are more phenomenal than ever before. Jalen Jenkins is an instructional leader in Aurora Public Schools who teaches science, serves as an instructional coach, and provides professional learning opportunities for her colleagues at Central High School. Her classroom is a place where both wellness and achievement are valued and fostered. Today, Jalen and I are exploring the connections between agency, equity, understanding, and student discourse, as illustrated by the PEBC Teaching Framework and Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Ward-Hoffer. Jalen, you are coming to us today from your school. I know you're tucked away in your office, so good morning, and how are you? Good morning. I'm doing extremely well. Wide awake. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. I'm glad that we just got started with our conversation. It was so fun to catch up with you a little bit before we got started this morning and to hear the morning announcements. I know that you are a very, very busy school leader and you know sharing your time between instructional coaching, helping to shape professional learning in your building, and of course, teaching science. So I thought we might start this morning before we dive into it, just dive into our conversation around discourse about hearing about you as an educator and a little bit about your journey. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, My name is Jalen Jenkins. So I would sum my kind of life up into three phrases or descriptors. I'd say I'm an educator, an advocate, and a wellness enthusiast. Um, As um, you all heard, I teach science at the high school level. Um, I consider myself an advocate for um, holistic learning, um, holistic wellness, Um, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to physical well-being, things of that nature, I really love to advocate for those things and really promote them. What gives you the most energy? What gives me the most energy is light bulbs and um, the recently coined phrase of life worthiness in science. Um, Truly being a science teacher and having grown up learning science in a traditional format it really gives me life seeing students understand why science is important, how it becomes very real and evident in our um, society, in our world, in our personal lives, and just seeing how they just develop that spark and that understanding. So my life in a love little slut. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive in, though. Our topic today that we wanted to talk about was student discourse. And so for you, especially, you know, at any level, K-12, interacting with adults, what is student discourse all about or what is discourse all about and how do you define discourse? So discourse for me, especially at the secondary level, I would definitely say it's compelling conversation Um, and truly it doesn't have to be always academic. It should just be a topic in which it promotes consistent conversation. It's worthy of being chatted about. 
in short. Um, so you can have discourse just to build community. You can have discourse to develop holistic understanding around the periodic table. There's a whole span in ways in which you can use discourse to expand understanding. Okay, so like you said earlier that you had learned science in a more traditional format. So based on your definition of discourse as that compelling conversation that in which kids have something worthy to talk about, what might that look like in your classroom? Drop us in. What are you up to this week? Well, it's funny you say that. Actually, yesterday we just did a lab um, exploring how our um, chemical and just physical impacts in, like directly impact the world around us. And so what we did yesterday is we took sulfuric acid, aka um, liquid fire, which is kind of comparable to Drano, and okay. we looked at how um, something so easily accessible in the store can possibly have impacts or implications on our natural environment, our ecosystem as a whole. Um, and so that's one thing we just did yesterday. Um, another thing, when I was teaching chemistry, um, we were talking about how um, different chemical compounds really impact our curl patterns and how to be efficient and effective at shopping whether it be, um, be around organic products or just things without like sulfates in them, just being more intentional about understanding the ingredients in our items. So. Wow. So you're taking your scientific content and figuring out ways for kids to talk about that content, but in a way that connects to them and their lives. And, and so yes. I'm inferring that that really for you gets back to the idea of worthiness. Yes, that's a hundred percent key because Thinking about my experience in science just growing up, it was just, here's the bolded words, here's the vocab, make sure you make sense of this for you, and there you go. Good luck on the test. You got a week. And to me, that was not only traumatizing despite my um, photographic memory, but it, I was just like, why are we doing science if we're doing this? <laughs> like, there's no point. And so being able to make those connections and have it stick a lot more authentically for myself as a teacher, but then for the students, there's a lot more um, cross-curricular connections, but also holistic understanding for life. So, Wow. So that gets me to my next question. So, <clears throat> excuse me, as I'm listening, I'm thinking about like, why does discourse matter? And you've mentioned a couple things, but really for you, it seems like discourse is one of your core practices. Why does it matter for kids? It matters for kids. <laughs> Again, I've been teaching for almost 10 years, elementary to um, secondary. And truly, whether I'm sitting in professional development or leading a class, nobody wants to be talked at for X amount of hours. And honestly, regardless of who's the expert, everybody has something to say. And so making sure to elevate all voices not only builds community, but it creates the expectation of collaboration, communication, and again, that community piece. Oh, I love what you just said. Everybody has something to say. So I Key think- to remember. I know, I like, I have to jot it down. <laughs> Everybody has something to say. So I think I kind of just answered my own question, but thinking about it, it's the beginning of the school year. And so, you know, we think about setting up rituals and routines, and we think about where students have been in the last 18 months. Um, in one of our conversations, you mentioned that you really emphasize discourse at the beginning of the year. 
why lead with discourse? Why invest time in discourse right now? So truly, there's this is a really multifaceted um, answer. It's going to take a lot to unpack, to be honest. Go for it. But <laughs> so in terms of starting with discourse in the beginning of the year, whether it's just asking about your background or what you may love about science or quite frankly, what you dislike about science, just reinforcing that value that everybody has something to bring to the table conversationally um, sets, like I said, the expectation of um, communication, but also whether you're using it to get to know them on a personal level, get to know them scientifically and their background knowledge. Um, it, like I said, it sets that expectation. Um, you can build those relationships. And then again, as you get into more content-rich conversations, they've already built that community and that set that norm to elevate their voices. And on top of that, <laughs> for the third part, um, it's just really key to show the students that you care on a human level and that you want to hear what they have to say. Quite often and traditionally speaking, the teacher has everything to say and the teacher has all the knowledge, but our students, especially in the last 18 months, despite the stereotype and the stigma around learning loss, students have learned a lot, whether it's been around mental health, whether it's been about like practical math application, practical science application. Um, there's a lot of life-worthy experiences that they've endured, whether it be voluntarily or involuntarily. And so elevating that and really showing the investment up front makes it a lot easier down the road. So when you care about the people in front of you and elevating their voice, the performance is exponentially and directly tied. So it's important. Wow. I mean, <clears throat> there is a lot to unpack right there. You mentioned three really important things, care and concern, building relationships, not just student to teacher, but student to student. Yes. And then that increased understanding. Mm-hmm of whatever the topic might be. If it's learning exactly. about our classmates or if it's learning about content as your students are doing this week. <clears throat> when you think about what you just mentioned, um, in order for learners to achieve at high levels, they need to feel tended to. They need to feel cared for. 100%, yes. So in discourse, I guess we think about working with students. How do we create the conditions so that discourse can thrive for students, so that students do feel cared for, so that students can build relationships, and so that students can get to that deeper understanding, if you will. This is also a hefty, um, unpacked answer. Um, I think I'll say at the core, um, I think of this when I'm envisioning my answer as a pyramid. So at the base, okay. when tackling your biases and maybe your traumas and who you're showing up as, as a teacher, as a leader, um, as a facilitator in the classroom, understanding who you are and what you bring to your classroom is the first thing. And then moving from there, like I said, investing into your students. So um, being intentional about building those relationships, not just building those relationships when they're in your, in your classroom. If you have a passing period, um, if you have lunch, take an opportunity to go spend some time with students to show that authenticity, but also um, show the in investment overall. And so once you've done those different things, and again, different strokes for different folks, there's not one way fit that fits all for everything, um, but these are just strategies I recommend. Um, but taking time and being intentional about investing in those students, and then from there, 
really setting that expectation of engaging in conversation, being authentic, and trusting that everybody has something to bring to the table, um, and setting up those structures. You know, it's still a ritual and routine. Technically, you're making that a norm. It just takes either some modeling, some you know, problem of practice almost, and just making sure to make time to talk. Not just saying turn and talk all the time. It may be let's have a facilitated conversation. Let's go through this whole protocol. Let's explore and then discuss kind of thing. So just making it a routine and then showing up authentically and progressively growing. So really for you, when you're thinking about, you know, you have a new crop of learners coming into your classroom, coming into some professional development kind of learning, you mentioned something about thinking about your own personal biases and your expectations. I really want to dig into that a little bit. And then I want to kind of go kind of through your pyramid, if you will. Because I think you shared a lot of really, really rich information, but let's start there. Like what are you thinking about in terms of that first layer? So in terms of our biases, especially if we're just going to call it like it is, especially in the past 18 months, a lot of events have happened around the world that have brought a lot of issues to the forefront. And instead of sweeping over it and continuing to replicate the system, really diving into um, those norms, those implicit biases, um, really just thinking about the expectations you hold for yourself, but then also your learners can really be in, like enlightening in terms of how you facilitate a classroom. And regardless of the teaching style, um, that may also impact how one facilitates discourse. Um, So if you feel like you are the only one who holds knowledge, whether that's an explicit or implicit understanding, um, how you facilitate your classroom will directly align, essentially. And so um, if you have the shared value of everybody has something to say, the power of representation, the power of dismantling like racist systems and things of that nature, it becomes, I won't say easier necessarily, but it becomes more intentional and authentic to house an inclusive and holistically comprehensive classroom. So, yeah. That's really powerful. And you think about just the way in which you just phrased that, but also when we think about expectations. Mm -hmm. Like that's a big piece of our framework for discourse is setting expectations and creating structures. But those expectations for everyone to be valued and part of a conversation and setting up those structures don't happen overnight. Truth. (laughs) So there's that inner work of really thinking like how much control am I able to give up? What internal biases am I holding on to that maybe I haven't recognized? What are my fears? if I let kids talk or, or had that student-centered conversation. So all of that for you sounds like a really, really important piece of your practice in terms of leading kids into meaningful conversation. Yes, 100%. So then after kind of thinking about that internal work, you went external. You mentioned building relationships with kids. Yes. Hanging out in the cafeteria, hanging out in the hallway, What does that look like and sound like for you in your classroom and around the building? So to be quite frank, I have an Apple Watch and I'm so glad I invested because I see how many steps I've gotten in the past three weeks and it has been magnanimous. Um, I had a professor in college during undergrad and she mentioned if you are a teacher and you're not getting 10,000 steps, 
you're probably doing something wrong. And for a little bit, I was just like, how? It depends on the school size, blah, blah, blah. And as I've gone through every year of teaching, I've been like, wow, she's right. Like, she's right. I literally can't leave the schoolyard or, you know, wherever I'm at, truly, if it's even facilitating professional learning without like 10,000 steps. And so what that looks like in practice is walking around your classroom, sustaining that proximity, investing in those conversations, like I mentioned before, but also in the hallways during passing period. Sometimes it's stressful. You might be behind a couple minutes um, and you might need to set up some things or whatever, but that's the opportunity for student leadership. Ask for some help. It's always okay. Students are typically eager to help sometimes. And so um, tap into that potential, but also get into the halls, you know, say hi. (laughs) I love your shirt. Love your hair. Um, Where did you get those Crocs from? Like there's so many different ways to really, you know, spark a conversation, show that authenticity, build those relationships in and out of the classroom. Because quite often, I think a lot of people think relationships are built or sustained in the classroom and it takes that much more. I don't just build relationships with my friends or family purely at like my mom's house or my friend's house. It takes constant pursuit. And so any relationship worth having is worth constantly pursuing. So thinking about yourself, ourselves, thinking about the ways in which we build relationships with students so that they trust us, so that we can then encourage that discourse, knowing that there is someone who has their back. Yeah. Take us then into the classroom. I know you have this really beautiful conceptual kind of organizing principle around discourse. And there are, you know, four different components of discourse that are really important for you for your practice, particularly when we get into like the tactical, right? Like really bringing rich discourse into the classroom. So when you're thinking about discourse, what are those conceptual like steps, if you will, maybe tactical steps that you think are the kind of the secret sauce? for having great discourse, for kids having great discourse? Well, okay. So like you mentioned, there's about four kind of core points to it, but I would say the synthesis of it all really is that life worthiness piece. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, if it's worth talking about or worth chatting about, students are going to engage in discourse. If I asked students, why is two plus two four? And I was kind of trying to argue them down, that would get old really quick. But if I was trying to get them to argue which budget would be most effective, um, given my salary or given my scholarships or something of that nature, that would be more meaningful to them to actually um, debate or justify, explain all those different um, depths of knowledge, adjectives, verbs, whatever we want to call it, um, to really come to life, essentially. So that life worthiness piece is key and a component of life worthiness embeds CRSE, which is culturally responsive and sustaining education, um, relevant and engaging um, topics and questions, things of that nature. So that life worthiness piece is truly at the top. And then, oh, go ahead. (laughs) Well, I'm just thinking about like that idea around, you know, we toss the term authenticity around all the time. Mm -hmm. We need to have authentic learning experiences. We need to be able to connect our classroom learning to the outside world. But what you're really advocating for is if we know our students well, we can be more culturally responsive. We can provide education that's culturally sustaining for kids, for all kids. Correct. And then the other, yeah, go ahead. uh 
just because I think people have, they often attest to having a greater depth of knowledge about their students. Um, and it may lend itself to either stereotypes or problematic practices. And so really being intentional to get to know your students, their interests, things of that nature allows for more intentionally planned um, lessons, activities, things of that nature, instead of just assuming, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Because you, uh, I, when you mentioned stereotypes, it made me cringe a little bit. Right. Like we don't, yes. that's, that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about really knowing each and every learner, knowing their interests, knowing their strengths, knowing their needs the best that you can. So that when you're thinking about curricula or the activities or the readings or whatever you're doing in your classroom, it's relevant, it's engaging, and it's worth talking about. Yes. Yes. All right. So life worthiness, everyone jot that down in your journals right now. Discourse needs life-worthy topics and engaging questions. All right. Yes. And honestly, just to build off of that journal point, if you need to add, think about why does this matter? And not necessarily why does this matter to me as a teacher? Why does this matter to my students? Life-worthiness, I can make a personal connection for my own life, but if the students have no buy-in or sense of investment to it, it's just another task to complete. So make sure to reinvest and realign the life worthiness to students. So if you're bored, more than likely they're bored. And if you also are not enthused or something of that nature when you're communicating it, students are really good at feeding off of energy. So that's also something to consider. Right. So you want to keep your own frequency high. Yes. And if you're engaged, chances are your students will be engaged. Yes. Which then takes us to <laughs> the next point. Um, as a secondary teacher, all the secondary teachers listening um, have multiple contacts. They work with a, a large number of students. We think about our elementary colleagues. They might have less students, but they have that smaller group of students for multiple subjects. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about life worthiness, what do we also have to think about? We also need to think about open-ended questions. So okay. understanding that some students or some teachers may have two or 300 students at large kind of thing. Um, presenting those open-ended questions kind of allow you to get a feel for your students, understand where values are, where interests are, while also not necessarily needing to do an exponentially heavy lift. So really getting to present those open-ended questions. And again, that relationship building in the beginning lends itself to kind of tweaking what is necessary to be adapted for a certain period or a certain um, age group, something along those lines. So as you get to know your students, you know how to kind of adapt accordingly. So it may just be periods at a time. You don't need to focus at your 300 students. Maybe if you know your sixth period is really energetic and they love video games, that may be how you um, use an entry point or maybe accommodate activities within your classroom to continuously sustain that interest, that buy-in, that life worthiness, in a sense. Yeah, it does. And the open-ended piece is interesting because you had mentioned earlier that we need to kind of examine our beliefs around learning. And if we want a student-centered classroom, I'm inferring that that means we need some inquiry. Yeah. And there has to be an opportunity for students to not only have rich conversation, but to explore almost different points of view. So with yes. an open-ended question, I can't lead the horse to water. That's 100% true. Yes. 
So, so with, mm-hmm, go with those, ahead with <laughs> those open-ended questions, um, kind of, you know, they make the students truly explain how or why. It's not a one-word answer. You can also say, and what else? What else are you thinking? How might this work in this situation? You can present counterpoints, counterclaims, things all, you know, across the spectrum of um, conversational pieces. And then that also takes me to my next point around having multiple entry points. Going back to that piece of everybody having something to contribute, it's really key to craft intentionally um, inquisitive questions that really allow for students to have something to contribute regardless of how verbose they are, how much content knowledge or how much background knowledge they may have around whatever you're discussing. But those open-ended and multiple entry points really allow for discourse to become the most rich and authentic experience in a classroom. It seems like it would also, the multiple entry points to me almost feels like a litmus test. Yes. Right? Like if I have a really life-worthy topic and I have Mm -hmm. some open-ended questions, there should be opportunities for all of my students to engage at some level. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. With multiple entry points, you know, I was just kind of mentioning like the cognitive entry point. Question for you, what from my students who maybe are less likely to share or a little more more like reticent, maybe hold back their ideas, perhaps a little more introverted. What do entry points look like for students who don't naturally kind of process verbally or, or aren't big talkers, if you will? Yeah, so there's a lot of different w- ways to really employ this. I think in the beginning of the year, this is kind of off, I don't say off topic, but it lends itself to the conversation. I always start my years with like personality tests and things of that nature. And so we'll do like 16 personalities. We did Enneagram and love languages and things like that in the first week. And it was really insightful for the students, but it was also equally as insightful for me. And so for my students who are introverted, we kind of talked about like, what does this look like in terms of conversation? Are you comfortable in a conversation, big group, Um, you and me just really talking one-on-one? What, like, what do you prefer? Um, And depending on what they say, I can kind of accommodate accordingly. But when I start the year, I start like with four corners or something like that with all these different statements. And for one of them, I've done like, would you rather focus on the biology content or would you like to focus on life skills. And obviously they're going to get both, but knowing where their interests lie, regardless of their personality type, I can kind of use that to guide how to get them to talk. So when we started um, our biology unit around ecology specifically, one day I came in and my nose sounded stuffy, no allergy medicine. And I said, do you guys see like the skies outside? Like, let's go take a look. And let's make some observations. Let's notice what's going on around in our specific ecosystem. And every student had something to observe or like uplift because it was something low risk. And from that point forward, they could say, oh, yeah, I remember this event. I remember us talking about this. I've also already kind of talked about this in a conversational sense and an academic sense. So I can be vulnerable kind of thing. So it's really just sustaining that. Wow. So we have life-worthy topics. We have compelling opportunities for conversation, open-ended questions, multiple entry points. 
That's a secret sauce. That's a secret sauce. <laughs> but then that's like that fourth piece, though, is huge. Intentional planning. Yes. Like, this doesn't yes. just happen. It, this does not just happen. And honestly, I want to encourage all the educators, all of the um, support staff, regardless of your title, if you're involved in education and learning in any capacity, understand that you have to have grace with yourself, but you also have to be willing to dive in. And so the intentionality of planning is key um, because when you are taking something abstract, for example, like scientific um whether it be inquiry, like chemistry, for example, is so abstract. You cannot really touch much. You can observe things, chemical reactions, but at a microscopic level, sometimes things are harder to grasp. Um, and so being intentional with like thinking of the life-worthy event that you could connect to the lesson or the lab or whatever as the anchor is key. Um, making time to scaffold supports and um, levels of difficulty and then also making time. You have to make time for students to talk and embrace that awkward silence. I I don't know how many times I say it to students. They think sometimes like, oh, miss might be in a rush. Maybe we'll get away with it. And I'm like, oh, no, we have time. I'll just wait. <laughs> just take a moment. If you need some time to process, we've got the time. So think about what you need to say. Um, if you have a counterclaim, whatnot, there you go. Um, and structure is very, very important, whether you have sentence stems for concurring, disagreeing, all of those things, that type of stuff is important because then you minimize the barriers for students to succeed. So whether it's CLDE supports, which is culturally, linguistically diverse education, um, whether it's ESS supports, so um, special education supports, things of that nature, Having those structures and minimizing those barriers makes it that much more likely that everybody succeeds. So that's important. Um, I, I mentioned the silence and then the flexibility. I mentioned the grace to either fail or just be curious, but be flexible. If you have an hour period and you want to spend 20 minutes talking, understand that might be longer or shorter depending on the needs of the students, but giving yourself the grace to fail forward. You have to keep making progress. Keep trying. If it didn't work today, maybe kids are just tired. Maybe they didn't eat what they needed to today. It, there may be a whole gambit of things that may have occurred. But keep trying. Build that expectation and just continue to be intentional with your planning so that it continues to thrive. Wow. Jalen, I just am so appreciative of the ways in which you think about your students and the ways in which you think about your discipline, that you really want each and every one of your students to be successful. So when I think about discourse, a couple of things that we didn't talk about explicitly, but definitely came through implicitly, was equal access to content that matters and opportunities for language development. Yes. And so that connection between discourse to agency, equity, and understanding is so, is so apparent in our conversation. And when I think about as we wrap up today, what is a call to action that you have for all of us? Ooh, that's going to be hefty. Buckle up, everybody. So um, I think you kind of got the gist for me. Relationships are key. Um, if you don't put forth the effort initially, even if you kind of put that to the back burner um, to focus on content right now, I challenge you 
to pause on that for a brief moment and invest in those relationships. Students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So once you care about the people in front of you, the performance, like I said before, is exponentially and directly proportionate. So put in the work now, you'll see the payoff in the end. Um, Another thing is be creative. Especially right now, in the past 18 months, we have done so much. Embrace your creativity. Be innovative. This is the time for change. And so I really 100% spur you to just do what not only feels right, but feels right for the students, both academically, holistically. Finally, (laughs) and most importantly, in my opinion, put yourself in the seats of students. If you, like I said before, if you're bored, more than likely they're bored. If you've sat in professional development, if you've sat um, in a student seat traditionally and you've been like, oh, my goodness, what are we doing? Imagine how students feel. So take their interests, take the life worthy aspects, take those relationships and leverage them to build a comprehensive and holistic learning experience. It will be so worth it. I promise you. Jalen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. 